This Saturday marks 15 years since Hanson native Maura Murray disappeared after crashing her car in New Hampshire. Now her father says he has the evidence that could provide investigators with the break they need, but he's frustrated because he says they're not acting on it. It's video of not one, but two different cadaver sniffing dogs appearing to hit on something in the basement of a house near the scene in Haverhill, New Hampshire, where Maura Murray disappeared. Fred Murray says he got two tips about the house in the year after his daughter vanished and was told new concrete had been poured in the basement. A ground-penetrating radar specialist found something in the same area. A retired New Hampshire state trooper telling five investigates, he believes this gives investigators probable cause to excavate for the remains. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office tells five investigates, we are aware of the allegations regarding that home's basement and have considered and are considering next steps. Welcome back, I'm Erin. In this episode, Ethan and I talk a little bit about Witness B, also known as Susan Champy, and what she saw when she drove by the scene of Moore's accident the night she disappeared. We also talk a little bit about the new lead in the case and how law enforcement has been responding to the new evidence. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any comments, questions, or clarifications. Okay, so I think that the only mention of Susan Champy is the SoCo article from 2011, and she was the one who worked at Loon Mountain. Mm -hmm. According to the SoCo article, it says Champy was scheduled to finish work at 7 p.m. at the Loon Mountain Club the evening of February 9th, but she left late at 7.20, which means that she would have passed by the scene around 7.50, where she saw police and a couple of bystanders near the car. And it says, when she drove by, Champy remembered noticing that police officers had one of the doors of Moore's car open. She recalled reading in the newspaper afterwards that they'd obtained a search warrant the next day to search the vehicle, which made her wonder whether they should have had the door open without first getting a search warrant. So I, I asked her about what she saw that night recently, mm -hmm. and she pretty much reiterated the same thing, but she added that she actually stopped and spoke to the police officer for a minute. Oh, really? When she was passing through. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a very long conversation. She just asked if they needed help. Yeah. 
So um, it wasn't like she was just driving by. She actually did stop. Mm-hmm. She couldn't remember exactly how many bystanders there were. She knew that there was at least one. There was at least one other person besides the police officer. Okay. And possibly two, but she doesn't remember. And she doesn't remember which officer it was either, just that it was a person who was medium build and dark hair. So probably not Jeff Williams. <laughs> I think that's like the only thing that we can probably conclusively say because he's like seven feet tall. <laughs> so it was probably Cecil Smith. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But she said she was pretty adamant about the fact that they had the door open. And according to her, they were searching through the car. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about that was something that contradicted the police report she said that the car was in the eastbound lane facing east right the police report said it was facing west west right so according to susan champy the car was not facing the wrong direction it was facing the correct direction and i asked her what door was open because she said that they were in the car and one of the doors was open and she she said it was the driver's door okay so front seat driver's door, which would make sense if the car was, like she said, facing in the eastbound lane facing east. So that's an interesting contradiction. I don't know if it means anything. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, what would the reason be that it would be incorrect on in the police report? Right. <laughs> I mean, Guy Parody did say one of the things that he said was he has worked with police before and they have made mistakes like that where they've been like on the complete wrong side of the road. Yeah. Or, I mean, it does happen. I would think it's not that common, but yeah, but it does happen. I don't know. Uh, I, I do know that John Marat, I believe, said at one point that he could see brake lights and someone was, like, backing up. Mm-hmm. It's possible that they moved the car, that they turned it around for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why you turn a car around. If he saw brake lights, though, couldn't that have been a cop car's brake lights? I think that he was specifically referring to the Saturn, but it's unclear. It's not completely clear. Yeah. That was in the Whitman Hansen article. Okay. Uh, So that was a contradiction. And then, of course, Susan is pretty adamant that the police were in the car, according to her. They were searching. Right. Looking for something. Smith said that uh, the car was locked, right? And he did not go in the car that night. Yes. Which I always thought was interesting because he also said that he saw... I believe he said he saw the stains in the car mm-hmm. uh, from what he thought was wine. And I always thought that was kind of weird, like, that he was able to see that at night. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you shined the light in, you could. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. It would seem like more likely something you'd find if you actually went in the car. Right. But if he was if he was being very investigative and wanted to note every detail, I suppose he could have seen it without opening the door. Yeah, and... I think we mentioned this on one of the episodes that he kind of goes out of his way in the interview that he did with the Oxygen Show to say that the car was locked and he never got in to the car that night. I mean, he says it like four times. So I do think that that's a little strange. Right. I mean, it could be nothing. He could have just not wanted to maybe tell the truth about that because he broke protocol or something yeah but why would he why would he care at this point that's what uh, you know. well because you start off like maybe you tell a lie initially and then you have to keep up the lie kind of thing yeah but yeah it does seem like kind of a dumb thing to lie about i guess if you went into the car and later you found out you weren't supposed to because it was a crime scene then in order to preserve the crime scene you might lie about the fact that you opened it because the defense could of course seize on 
any breach in protocol. That's true. But then <laughs> if you run the risk of if it's a crime scene and you say you weren't in the car, but then your prints are found there. <laughs> right. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's true. I would certainly never advise a police officer to go into a... <laughs> vehicle without a warrant and then lie about it and i mean the thing is like they probably didn't necessarily need a warrant like you to enter a car i think all you need is probable cause right and and if he really saw alcohol then yeah well there's been an accident and the the accident's been abandoned i would think that would also be probable cause now there's also evidence of injury so i don't know i feel like it would be fine i don't know the other thing like if he went in to put it in neutral for the tow truck driver right or make sure that the emergency brake wasn't on but again, first, like, why lie about it? And second, Susan Champy specifically did not see any other vehicles there. Yeah. So it seems unlikely it was for the tow truck driver. Yeah. Normally the car wouldn't even need to be a neutral. Also, they would just, if it was a flatbed, they just drag it up on the bed. Yeah. And if you yeah. if it's a rear wheel or front wheel drive, it doesn't matter. So you, you might need to take the parking brake off, but more as like most people shouldn't set the parking brake. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. <laughs> Or come up with any reason why they might have the door open, but it just seems like a pretty big discrepancy. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And um, one other piece of information that does corroborate Smith's account is that she thinks that she saw an SUV police cruiser and not a sedan. Okay. And I think that it's sort of been assumed in the past, and I, I don't know what the origin of this was, that Susan Champy saw a sedan, saw number 002 that night, but I don't think that she's ever commented before on what type of cruiser it was. And when I asked her, she she wasn't sure, actually, but she said she thinks it was the SUV. Okay. And it's unclear if she's actually seen the Oxygen show. I believe that she has. So Yeah, if she didn't have a specific memory of it, her memory is probably not worth a whole lot now with all the discussion and speculation if she witnessed that. Um, that would definitely, I would think, taint her memories. Right. But uh, worth noting, definitely. Yeah, especially because I don't think that she would have said earlier that she saw the sedan, and now that she saw the SUV, I don't think she ever said that she saw a sedan. Right, if she had a, something in mind, right. she wouldn't like change it, probably. Yeah, so um, anything else about Susan Champy? Oh, um, the one other thing that I was trying to see if she had more information about was the Loon Mountain 3. Yeah. Since she worked there? Yeah, and because in the SoCo article it says that her replacement hadn't arrived, and that's why she was late leaving. Okay. So I thought maybe that's perhaps where the rumor originated, if like this person never came to work. Mm, okay. Um, but she said that her replacement eventually did arrive. Ah. And um, she's not really sure where the rumors about Loon Mountain came from. She just knows that there's a lot of people that work there. And there's a lot of rumors, and yeah, <laughs> she reminded me like several times that they're just rumors. Essentially, she couldn't add anything. Yeah. Okay. You think it's uh, probably just a coincidence that she works there? I guess probably a lot of people in the area work there. Yeah, it probably is just a coincidence. I sort of thought that perhaps those rumors might have come from her just because of the fact that like she said that she was waiting for her replacement. So maybe she had mentioned to somebody else that like X person didn't show up to work and then they're putting two and two together right uh and that's how it sort of originated but that doesn't seem to be the case okay because according to her they did show up eventually so still unclear where that rumor came from yeah so on to the new lead 
So I sort of haven't commented on this at all, really, because, I mean, Julie put out a statement on the official Facebook page saying that we are grateful for the passion and support among members of the community, but just as a reminder, if and when there are developments that we can share, that information will be relayed directly from us. So yeah, thus far we hadn't really heard anything official from the Murrays, but today uh, there was an article in the Journal Opinion, a local newspaper that looks like it serves parts of New Hampshire and Vermont. Mm-hmm. So it says that the Murrays arranged for ground-penetrating radar and cadaver dog tests at two different properties in the Haverhill area. Both had been on the family's radar since soon after Moore's disappearance. Testing at the first location in July did not turn up anything new. Then in early December, the Murrays looked at the second property. Two different cadaver dogs came to the location. The first dog sat down, signaling a hit, according to Fred and Julie. To verify these results, a second cadaver dog with a different handler arrived at the site. The second dog hit on the same spot, and so they brought in the GPR, which saw the anomaly. So this is essentially what we've been hearing for a little while, mm-hmm. but they're making it official. And the the first test in July that didn't turn up anything, I believe that was at Rick Forcier's house. Okay. So they're differentiating that from this second location where it seems like there are perhaps reasons to uh, look further, investigate further. So what do we know about what's happened since then? So this is, what is this, December? This was in December, it says. Yes, early December. So it's been two months. And according to, I believe, both Maggie and John Smith seem to agree on this point. It seems as though the police aren't uh, motivated, necessarily, to look too hard at this lead, and they have claimed that they've looked at this location at least three times in the past, and shortly after Mora disappeared, so initially in 2004. Mm Mm-hmm. And that seems to be enough for some people. The fact that, you know, they said that they looked at it. Right. Said so they looked at it. <clears throat> so the question is, what does that mean? Looked at it in what respect? And to me, they wouldn't have used GPR, most likely. Right. So according to Maggie, they found nothing of evidentiary value. But, I mean, I think it's telling that they obviously went a first time mm-hmm. and didn't clear it because they went back a second time. Right. And didn't clear it because they went back a third time. And and presumably they found nothing of evidentiary value at, at any of those times, but there had to have been something that was drawing them to, to that location multiple times. Something drew their interest. Right. And we don't know if they got a warrant for the property or if there's different parts of the property and they were allowed to come in, but only in one particular area. Like we don't know anything about what they did or if they just kind of looked around or right. interviewed some of the people that might've been there. We just don't know anything about the search is. Yeah. I don't know. It's a little mystifying to me that the police would not be interested. And you'd like to think that if new information about a specific type of evidence, like the GPR and the cadaver dog hits was brought to them that they didn't previously had, that they wouldn't have had access to you. You'd think they wouldn't dismiss that unless they had a good reason to, but that's not what, as far as we know, what they said. What they said is they checked out the house. So, like, it's nothing for us to go on, really. Right. I mean, we would like to believe that if they're downplaying it, that it means that they truly believe that there's nothing there. But, like, 
<laughs> the reality is there's a lot of different motivating factors. And I think it's it's sort of frustrating the way it's been framed one-dimensionally without considering that it doesn't have to be a conspiracy of silence on the police's part. Uh -huh. Because often when it concerns political officials or any kind of government agency, one of the biggest concerns is money. Yeah. <laughs> like, when in doubt, the answer is budget. Yeah, and we, we really don't talk about it a lot because people have this, like, thing about talking about the dollars and cents. It seems um, not appropriate or something. Yeah, and, I mean, as far as I can tell, there's a lot of reasons to think that maybe uh, Detective West's response is motivated by not a lack of interest, per se, but a lack of resources. Right. Because law enforcement officials, including Jeff Strelzen, testified this past week before the New Hampshire legislature that they're essentially out of money. Mm. So they haven't produced reports that they are required to issue by law since 2016. They're going before Congress and saying that they need at least $220,000 and that lack of funds have resulted in their investigation suffering. Mm. They only have one dedicated investigator for 128 cold cases. Woof. And I've talked to people in the state that have told me that, yeah, when you have hot cases, for, for lack of a better term, yeah. when you have things that are going on, the first cases that are pull resources from like investigators and prosecutors are the cold cases. Yeah, this is interesting. This article references, it looks like there was federal funding to help create the cold case unit. The cold case unit hasn't been around that long. It's been around since 2009. Mm -hmm. So it's not even something that used to exist. They got an infusion of federal funding. And as often happens, I imagine, you know, that only gets you so far without, you know, a commitment from the state to dedicate money for that purpose. That looks like it has languished. Right. And they're not going to come out and say, we think that this could be something, but we simply don't have the resources to follow up. That's not something that they're ever going to say. So they're going to say what they said, which is that we looked at that and not really give away much else. Right. So you never, you're, or you very rarely hear the police in any particular case say, well, we're not going to spend any more money on this particular case. Um, because the public simply doesn't want to hear that or deal with that reality of finite resources. What we want to hear is you'll never stop until you crack it. But right. for good reason, that's unworkable and that's unrealistic. So yeah, of course, what they're going to do in that case is come up with another answer that will be more palatable, which makes me crazy, but I understand it. I understand it from a political perspective. Yes. Um, but I also understand if no one ever questions them or makes them explain why they're not following up on a certain lead, then they're able to get away with it. Yeah. And the frustrating part is that they can hide behind that forever. Yes. It's a completely impenetrable response. It's a conversation stopper. It's not really a productive kind of answer or anything that would give us confidence. And we don't know for a fact that there's a money issue here. It could just be that they just think it's more sensible to wait. Um, but we do mm -hmm. know, based on that bill that there is an issue with money in the cold case unit. So regardless of whether it applies to Moore's case or not, it's something that people need to think about and be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, here's the other thing. Maybe it's not Mora. What if it's somebody else? There's still the possibility that it, it's some other person. You know, two cadaver dogs alerted. So everyone should want to know. <laughs> yes, strongly suggests 
human remains. Yeah. Now, I don't know a whole lot about cadaver dogs. I feel like, from what I've read, they're pretty good. I mean, they're spe- this is human remains they're trained to detect, mm-hmm. not like squirrels and stuff. Um, now, a dog is just, look, it's just an animal, and sometimes they don't behave like 100% the way they're trained to, but this is two dogs who both picked up on something. Yes. So this is an article from Syracuse.com that's interviewing a cadaver dog expert from North Carolina who published a book, What the Dog Knows, the Science and Wonder of Working Dogs. And according to this, a dog with proper training has an accuracy rate of about 95%. Wow. Quote, so if a dog says it's there, there's a darn good chance it is yeah so you have two two animals with a 95 percent chance that seems pretty unlikely that there's nothing there now i also don't know are cadaver dogs usually able to like detect remains like below concrete yes they can detect through concrete and through pretty deep water Hmm. they can detect human remains hundreds of years old and she's describing one incident where uh, a dog alerted and the body was found 15 feet below the ground. So Wow, that's impressive. Mm-hmm. So yeah, having two separate dogs and separate handlers on two different occasions, like alerting in the same area, is a pretty good indication that there's a human somewhere there. Yeah, so like who is it? Or what is it? And until you can answer that question, I just, I don't see how you can just, like, let it go. Yeah, if they can't explain to me why they checked it out and determined that this is not important, then I don't have any reason to believe it. Right. Bearbrook murders by any chance? The Bearbrook case? Uh, sounds kind of familiar, but I'm not okay. really familiar with it. So, in 1985, there was a barrel found with two bodies in it. Oh, yes, I do remember that. And then, years later, they found another barrel, uh, like, 100 yards away or something, with more bodies in it. And the identities of the victims are unknown, and there is a podcast right now that's hosted by an npr reporter named jason moon they talk about like how ultimately they ended up finding the the suspect that's he's unfortunately deceased but was almost certainly responsible for the bearbrook murders really yeah the fbi eventually were the ones to determine that it was a man who went by Bob Evans. That wasn't his real name. I think his real name was like Terry Rasmussen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I guess my point of saying all that is one thing that stood out to me in the podcast when I was listening to it was there was a woman, a New Hampshire resident, who was essentially like an armchair detective type and was very interested in this case and did a lot of of work on her own uh, researching and she spoke to the property owner where the barrels were found on multiple occasions. Like, she'd call him up and say, um, you know, somebody sent me this tip. What do you think about that? And eventually, one time that she spoke to him, he said, you're barking up the wrong tree. You need to look at Bob Evans. This was in 2014. And he proceeded to give specific examples 
and a pretty compelling narrative as to why Bob Evans might be suspicious. Okay. And again, this was like the guy whose property the barrels were found on. So he was intimately familiar with the case. Yeah. So she felt it compelling enough to pass along to the state police, particularly because this, this guy, the property owner, Ed Gallagher is his name, had not, he hadn't told the police this uh, information. Okay. So she passes it along and they ignore it. <laughs> and <laughs> two years later, took the FBI to come in and determine that, yes, it was in fact Bob Evans. But the state police had this information years before. Yeah. And the podcast host was able to interview Jeff Strelzen okay. and ask him about this. And his angle or his line of questioning was more along the lines of, well, how do you know that this guy, Ed Gallagher, wasn't involved in the murders if he had such intimate knowledge and they were on his property? Right. Like, how do you know that there isn't a murderer out there? And, like, I understand that things get overlooked and missed sometimes, mm-hmm. but... What was troubling to me was Jeff Strausen's response, because he essentially tried to justify their lack of action. Mark Gelinas may not have known Bob Evans that well, but one person who probably knew him the best in New Hampshire is Ed Gallagher, the owner of the Bearbrook Camp Store and the property where the barrels were found. I wanted to know if the fact that Gallagher had dropped the name Bob Evans years before the Lisa connection had raised any new questions for New Hampshire investigators. So shortly after I learned about all this, I called up Jeff Strelzum, the homicide chief at the attorney general's office. What about um, Ed Gallagher? Where does he fit into this story at this point for you guys? Is, is he, um, does he have anything else to add? No, not that we can tell at this point, no. I mean, obviously, you know, there were some connections there, but beyond that, nothing really to add. I, I guess I'm asking because he mentioned that name as early as 2014, um, according to what I've been told, and it just strikes me as, um, you know, odd that, that someone, you know, years before police had these connections sort of seemed to, seemed to at least guess correctly about the case. I, I don't, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I can't speculate on that. I mean, it took a lot of information before the pieces came together. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes information floats out there, names float out there, but again, you, you need other pieces before you can connect it, especially a case like this that had just gone on for so long and, you know, we just knew so little about, about and still know so little about the people who were involved. So, you know, that can happen. Sometimes names can float up, but, you know, they just they just don't mean anything at that point. It's 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 looking back that you go aha, you have those aha moments. So it doesn't, in other words, it doesn't raise any suspicions in, in you or anyone else at the at the department. No. Okay. No, I mean we certainly have considered and whether or not, you know, we'll call him Bob Evans because that's who he was in New Hampshire. You know whether whether this was something he did all on his own, and all indications are that that his his criminal activities were done on his own. It's a frustrating response because his response is like, oh, well, you know, these names have been floating around. Well, okay, hang on. We're talking about the man on whose property the bodies were found, ultimately providing a name that turns out to be the person who did it. So 
this is not a case where it's like some random lead called in anonymously on the phone. You know, it's not something where you could where the answer of like, well, how are we to know? And it only makes sense in hindsight. It's not. This would have been a person of interest from the start. Sort of been someone intensely questioned, should have been intensely questioned, who ultimately gave up the name when simply bothered by a random civilian. So the idea that you don't have to like very seriously answer as to why the police were not able to handle this or come up with this information themselves, and you could just give this generic response of, well, sometimes you know you have the pieces, but you can't put them together without more. Uh, I I don't buy it. It's it's to me that's a useless non-answer in a case that's like very specific. Yes, and while everything he said was true, he's still justifying the fact that they ignored a very important lead with very compelling information from an individual that was front and center. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to think that they couldn't do that again, particularly because they don't seem to be able to see where they failed. Yeah. And and even, you know, he, he kind of brushes off the real question, which is, well, what about this guy? What about Gallagher? Are you worried about him? Was he involved? And he really doesn't answer that. Right. Well, he, he answers it, but he doesn't answer it. He says, Strauden says, no, I mean, we certainly have considered and still consider whether this was something he did all on his own and all indications are that his criminal activities were done on his own. I feel like that's a really easy answer to give without doing more investigation. Like, have you really looked into it that much? Or are you happy that you have a case that's closed now? Yeah. All indications before they got the name Bob Evans were that they had no idea who did it. Until they got the name Bob Evans and then all indications were it was this person. But, like, you didn't find any of that. That wasn't you. The FBI found that. So, like, why should we give any credibility to the statement all indications are that his criminal activities were done on his own? You clearly didn't know anything. So why would you be able to detect – why should we have confidence that you even tried to detect if this other person was involved? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, it seems, like, very routine to just make a phone call and say, did you say this to this person? Can mm-hmm. you tell me more? Like, just basic routine follow-up. Yeah. How do you know about this? What's your relationship? Like, yeah. I mean, how much money was spent the next two years looking for this guy when they had the information in front of their faces and either chose to ignore it because it was coming from the public and coming from somebody outside of law enforcement or didn't bother to waste the time and energy? Yeah. It's a very frustrating response. Yeah. So... When you hear that they're following up with every lead. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when the show came out and they said, oh, they're getting all these leads and they're following up every single one. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how? Yeah. <laughs> this is one case, one cold case with one person on it who has many, many, many other cases. So they have to filter and they have to pick and choose what they go after. But like you said, you know, they're never, you're never going to hear that. You're never going to get that admission from the police because it would go over poorly in the press i suppose yeah i mean they want i know that that bothered me when they they there was that insinuation that they were reopening the case and there were like three different task forces when they only have one investigator that's a little (laughs) yeah it's a bit bit hard to believe yeah so i've been involved in this case for like three plus years and in that time i found one tip 
that I've gotten compelling enough to forward it to the state police. Mm. That was in September of 2017. And I backed off and I didn't push or follow up myself with this because I trusted that the police would be diligent and pursue it. And then I checked back in with the person who gave me the tip. Yep. Uh, it was in late May or early June of 2018 and learned that the state police had never reached out to her. They'd never called her. So they didn't follow it up. Yeah. So I called Detective West and his response was to, for me, to tell her to call him if she felt that she had compelling enough information that he should know. Interesting. Yeah. That's not the response you're looking for. No, it's not. You're looking for someone who's going to probe and poke and and search down every alley. I mean, sometimes people aren't sure if their information is relevant. Yeah. And honestly, the people that you want giving you the tips are the ones that are going to be more discerning and not necessarily sure that their information is like breakthrough or whatever and might have some fear or intimidation about speaking to detectives or state police. Those are the people that you want to reach out to. And it doesn't seem like they have the resources or the time or energy to to be following up on those kinds of leads. And that's just the reality that I've seen. And it's nothing against Detective West. Every time I've talked to him, he's been seemed very competent and polite to me, which is nice because I've kind of been a pain in the ass trying to get information. You've been persistent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the reality is he's retired and he only works part-time, mm. and there's only so much that he can do on this without more resources. Yeah. <clears throat> it also seems like on, a, on, a, on any case, you need fresh eyes. And mm -hmm. If you literally only have one cold case investigator, how are you ever going to get fresh eyes on the case? That's a really good point. You know, like sometimes somebody can be – a smart person can be pouring over the same problem for mm -hmm. a long time and just can't see something that's like right in front of their face. It's happened to me <laughs> numerous yeah. times. That's why you work with people because um, everyone kind of brings a different perspective and a different vision. And, and multiple people have worked on this case over, this year, over the years, but at this point, all the new information seems to be just going through, through the one officer. And right. well, I hope this effort to increase their funding bears fruit because it seems like they desperately need more people in there. I think they were looking to expand to three Officers? Yes. Uh, well, so I believe the bill would actually only pay for two additional prosecutors. Two additional prosecutors. Attorneys. Okay. So I'm not really sure that it would help with this specific problem, but at least it's more resources. Yeah. So now here's a question that you probably don't know an answer to, but I'm just going to throw it out into the ether. Because the frustrating thing about this, right, is that there's a like community of people that are like really interested in this case and would love to help in any way. And if it's like literally a problem of like there's not enough money to dig a hole, <laughs> that's a fact that's going to be very frustrating to a lot of people. They're going to be like, how can it be that we can't, if we have permission from the owner, how can it be that we can't dig on this property mm -hmm. and see what's there? How much is it going to cost? Well, let me get out my checkbook, you know? And I know it's not that simple and it's frustrating, but I just wonder, states probably don't really have a mechanism for that, for taking in a specific amount of money for a specific job on a specific like police-related case. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a way. I don't know. Because um, it, it seems like if there's any case where that could happen, it would be this one. I know. So, I mean, that's a really good point. I think that the GoFundMe was sort of started for that purpose. Right. The problem with that is that 
if you bring in a private organization to excavate and it's not done through law enforcement and through the police, for one, you probably jeopardize the prosecution because evidence wouldn't have gone through proper channels. Mm -hmm. um, second, we don't know where this location is, right? And in order for money to be raised, I think people would want to know where this location is and where their money's going. Right. If it's found out, like, where this is, if we were somehow that was uncovered, you run the risk of convicting somebody in the court of public opinion who may be innocent. Yeah. So I think that there's there's challenges to privately funding right. things like this. Like, I think ultimately the proper way to do it is through the police. So that's what we have to push. That is the proper way. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, private individuals can't really solve cases. They can contribute, but it has to be the official criminal investigatory bodies that ultimately solve a case and bring it to a resolution. So we need we need to get them to do that in some cases. Right. So, I mean, of course, if it's, you know, ultimately, if it's done privately or nothing, then I think the family would rather just screw whatever prosecution and do it privately. Right. But you want to keep that option on the table as long as... You know, if there's any possibility you want to pursue that. Right. Obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to the extent that, like, podcasts can be useful, uh, I guess like any other traditional journalist, all you can do is hold the officials accountable. Yeah. And the ones that I think have been the most successful, like Serial or Robbie Chaudhry's follow-up undisclosed or some of the innocence project cases are ones where they push the system to work and to do better yeah i mean no i agree this case has been going for 14 15 years and you know what you had for many many years was complacency and no action and now that people are starting to pay attention you know we're starting to get leads and it's not because the police suddenly decided to do something. It's because people in the community decided to do something. I mean, the, the GPR was funded and the dog, uh, cadaver dogs was funded by the community who wanted to do something. So yeah, you're not going to get anywhere without pushing. Right. Technically, I think that those were volunteer. They weren't really part of the GoFundMe. Really? I believe so. Yes. Oh. Yes. I believe that this search was not part of the GoFundMe, but regardless, like it's still part of the community. I mean, the community of people and organizations and companies that care. Yeah, you wouldn't have gotten volunteers to to participate if it weren't a, a large uh, effort with lots and lots, thousands of people who are interested. Yes. Yeah, it's all part of the same thing. 